Hello again, Hushtillians, and welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour in an all-new Declassified Discussions. I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Mystery Mike. And I'm Slick Frank Sanders. Today we're joined by an extremely talented comic book artist and publisher who specializes in what we do, conspiracies and the occult. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Paranoid American. Hey guys, that's me, Paranoid American. Everyone, before we get going, we just want to say thank you for being here. And can you fill our listeners in who might not know who you are and what you're all about before we head off on this journey? So I, uh, I started a publishing company about 10 years ago in 2012 called Paranoid American. And originally it was just to self-publish a comic book that I had been working on for maybe five or six years. And uh, it just wasn't attracting the attention of any of the publishers that I was hitting up. So eventually I just decided to, you know, screw it and roll my own. And I did that and it went pretty well. And I fell in love with the format and I found some other people that fell in love with the format. So fast forward about 10 years and I've got, I think like 20 different titles that are under my belt now that are starting to come out. Uh, So yeah, if if you want to check some of it out, you can look at paranoidamerican.com and see some of them. Yeah. I've caught some of your artwork. It's on Instagram and very cool stuff. Yeah, I love it. Very cool stuff. I don't do all the artwork you see. I don't do all of that. I, I commission a lot of artists that I work with, too. You'll see that the style changes dramatically. Uh, so there's some that I do, and there's a lot that I, I hire out just because I don't have enough time to do everything myself. It's really cool. I'm just, just scrolling the other day. Yeah. Well, the, the good thing is I've got so much stocked up that I just haven't really released yet that I can just kind of leak, you know, one little preview every couple of days. And I'm, I'm like set for the next five or six years almost. So. That's so oh, shit. Oh, <laughs> Jeez. It's good to have that catalog. I mean, the difference is just the, the price of printing and just paper and shipping skyrocketed so that uh, it just at a certain point I had to make a decision. Am I going to put my money into printing or do I just put all the money into, you know, making some new comic artwork and writers and just get everything else set up for when printing maybe like comes back to normal. At least there's like a new way to do it. When you first started doing this, was it always conspiracy theory and occult stuff, or did it start off as something else and then morph into that? It was it was always conspiracy theory and occult <laughs> stuff, and in fact, mm-hmm. it really started as like a music project, and I wanted to do something that was kind of like the Gorillas at the time. Um, you know, they had like these animated characters that represented real musicians, but the you know the animated characters like had their completely own personalities. So the idea was kind of something gorillas adjacent, but that um, the four characters were just always investigating, you know, CIA mind control or UFOs or reptilians or something. And uh, that just kind of evolved from, you know, a music project into an animation project and it scaled back into comic books. And it's kind of lived in that realm ever since. I like the music portion because like you talk about that, like weird reptilian alien stuff, and it just makes me think of the faceless <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all stuff. yeah yeah that was the the biggest influence was pretty much just like uh like old all wu-tang songs and prodigy of mob deep talking about illuminati yeah. from 96 and uh you know tupac talking about illuminati all of that just kind of like absorbed directly into my brain you know like a sponge and for whatever reason i just really latched on to like all those concepts of like hip you know rappers talking about secret societies for some reason that was like something that really drew me in isn't it crazy how 
the words of some of those rappers and hip hop artists in the early nineties, like had such a great effect on people, even decades and decades later, like that started them down this path that they would continue to take for most likely the rest of their lives. Well, if you think about it too, man, like the, the hip hop community uh, and like the black community specifically had been like so blatantly and obviously wronged by the government so much longer than so many other, you know, groups that have a voice. So like, once they get the voice out there, of course, it's like all about distrusting the government and they're onto something, you know, like they're, they're right about all of it. Uh, so I think that was like a, a really direct way to get in there. We also noticed that all those groups that used to talk the most about the government, they kind of like slowly got weaned out, right? Like there's no, there's not a lot of public enemies anymore, for example. That's true. Yeah. But if you get into like indie hip hop, you get into immortal technique. That's oh, a big yeah, one big for sure. Yeah. I mean, that guy... Who was another one? Royce to five nine was another one that I used to like talk a lot about that. And then yeah, Mortal Technique was a heavy one though. Yeah. And we we can just we can list for the next hour, you know, nonstop. <laughs> but like Kill a Priest was always a, a huge one too. You know, basic uh, instructions before leaving Earth. Pretty much all of like the Wu related family um, was really big in it. You mentioned like Royce to five nine. Um, man, I mean, honestly, like the the Illuminati and secret society connection kind of has always gone hand in hand in uh, hip hop, especially with like the 5% nation and nation of gods and earths. A lot of that's kind of locked into the original DNA of the whole movement. Do you think that that continues into modern day music? As far as like the message getting out, like beyond maybe these indie artists, you always see, for instance, one of the big ones, Jay-Z, they throw up the, the Illuminati symbolism. Do you think that is them trying to open the eyes of people or is that a throw to those groups? What could it possibly be? I think it's almost like taking it back. Like, you know, we're the Illuminati now, like I'm the captain now kind of thing. I think it might be <laughs> a little bit of that, which, which is kind of, you know, interesting because it's that same tit for tat that most people claim that the real modern day Illuminati, all they're ever doing is just like putting blatant symbols in your face and just doing it, you know, in front of you and inverting things and profaning things. So what a better way than to like from the outside in be like, I'm the Illuminati now, you know? I like that take on it. That's that's true too. I never thought about that. There's so many conspiracies where people are like, oh, this person's part of that. But what if we're just mocking it? Not even mocking it, just owning it. Or just, you know, just playing like, you know, playing the idea. Like once you get an idea that, oh, if I put a pentagram or a triangle or, you know, the eye of Providence in my music video, like I'll get an extra 200,000 hits just from people going crazy and reviewing it on conspiracy boards and everything. Like it just becomes an aesthetic, just like someone might walk into the, you know, creative room and say, Oh, I want like a vaporwave aesthetic and I want a cyberpunk aesthetic. And let's just throw some like adrenochrome and conspiracy in there. And if you say that <laughs> you're going to get like a black cube, you're going to get an all seeing eye. You're going to, you know, you get like these very specific tropes, uh, which ends with people considering that Jay-Z and Beyonce are in the literal Bavarian Illuminati from the 1700s or something, <laughs> uh, which I, I don't necessarily believe there's a direct lineage between that, but there's obviously, you know, like gatekeepers in, uh, in different levels of industry. So in that regard, yeah, there's still a modern day Illuminati because they're the gatekeepers and they know everyone's dirty business uh, and, you know, everyone kind of pays homage to them. So it's sort of that same, same setup, you know, they kind of set the mold and the template and everyone's just been following along for hundreds of years. That's why sometimes I think 
people that we've discussed things with, other people in general that are very much in the conspiracy realm or around this occultism, I think they look a little too much into it. And besides looking at it and going, oh, this is a pop culture icon, this is a musical icon, a TV icon, this is you know a TV show. Oh, are they trying to show us this by doing this and showing this? Or is it really just aesthetic? Is it aesthetically pleasing? Or is it the design of something is just really cool and that's what they want to do? They want to put it up on the screen because it's eye-grabbing. Uh-huh. I think sometimes people do get a little too deep in their trying to decipher things well and and not every dp is necessarily stanley kubrick either right like sometimes (laughs) not every single detail got worked in and other times sometimes they are but there's not more thought that goes into it other than aesthetic a really good example is um he was a photographer and he did some music video adjacent work i think his name was terry richards and he had made kind of a big name for himself doing sort of like a cult taboo sort of like photography and he kind of got that knack of if you go to this guy, he gives you these kind of weird occult, you know, you'll, you'll be holding up like a goat's head with like fake blood on you or something. That's what you get when you go to Terry Richards. So everyone, you know, that starts building their portfolio, it's like, oh, did you get the Hype Williams music video? Oh, you already did the Hype Williams. Okay. Oh, have you done the Terry Richards photo shoot? Oh, you haven't done the Terry Richards photo shoot. All right, let's get you booked for that. So everyone almost goes through like. I'm not going to call it like a magical initiation, but you, you're talking to the same people as you like work your way into the industry. So sometimes you see those same themes and aesthetics and it might not always be the artist that picks it up front. You know, it's the labels, and the DPs and everything. Um, but after a while, the artists, you know, when they can afford their own budget, maybe they want to go back to Terry again or, or whoever hasn't been canceled. that's doing that same kind of stuff. It's crazy that things have been canceled. Like in that aspect over a decade ago, I was doing stuff with like, death metal and deathcore and we wanted nothing if we were going to do anything for music videos we wanted fucking satan and blood and like no <laughs> smiling and 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 any of that stuff and it wasn't because we believed in that we had some t-shirts that were super questionable you know with like inverted crosses and stuff we didn't think too deep of it we were just like all right we're a death metal band we're gonna have black clothing we're not gonna smile on stage and we're gonna try to make music videos that are as fucked up and gory as possible because that's the way it is. And there's some bands that are still doing that, but that's the way that I like connected. It's like, dude, it didn't mean anything. It was just like, this came with it. Yeah, but exactly. That's the thing that came with it with that genre that comes with it. It's different when you're talking about these pop icons that are targeting the masses instead of this (laughs) like more niche target audience. I mean, how far do you want to rewind that back? You could go, I mean, farther than this, but you could point at like Aleister Crowley being on the cover of the Beatles album. How much different is that than having like the literal, you know, Baphomet on the, the cover of your grindcore album with like the text that you can't read? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> could you fill us in on some of the projects you're working on right now? Like what, what you got going on? So one of the main ones is called The Chosen One. And this is a limited uh, series, like a 12 page ongoing comic. Um, the first uh, story arc will basically be six issues. And it features a bunch of conspiracy podcasters that uh, discover that there's actually like a secret society of podcasters and you have to like go through the the initiation until you can actually hit those numbers and become like an actual podcaster but they go to like <laughs> they go to cool. saturn and they fight like a huge like mech uh you know kind of like um an astral projected mech warrior they have like a battle there they go to inner earth into a place called tartantia 
uh, which well, is you know close an obvious joke yeah. on tar- uh, Tartaria, yeah. but it yeah. the joke is that it, it can't it ain't it taint quite the surface, but it also taint the inner earth. So it's Tartantia. It's kind of like in the middle of them, um, and it's That's got funny. it's got some cameos um, by Alex Stein. Um, it's got uh, Sam Tripoli's in it, XG and Johnny. Oh, shit. A whole so like the concept is that every different issue has a couple different actual you know cameos, and part of that's you know just to convey that idea of like this conspiracy podcaster world really does have this whole extra dimension to it um but then it's also to just kind of expand the reach a little bit because i notice a lot of people that end up reading paranoid american comics aren't necessarily comic book readers you know they come in from outside from a podcast or they see like a cool little thing and i get a lot of messages it's like hey i haven't read comics since i was you know eight or or nine years old and 20 years later, I'm finding your stuff and I'm falling in love with the format again. So that's kind of just like leaning all the way in to like embrace the podcast culture and try to bring comics to it. So that's one of the the main projects I've been working on. Um, I can go on. I got, I got so many others. I think Sam Tripoli was just talking. Was he just talking about that? You guys illustrated him, right? Yeah. He, so uh, yeah. Okay. Juan, Juan Ayala was just on a show about the homunculus on Tinfoil Hat. And so Sam mentioned the the chosen one. He showed some artwork, and Sam also uh, mentioned a, a comic series that I'm doing just with him directly. Sam Tripoli, Paranoid American. It's going to skew a little bit younger. Um, I'm not going to give a whole lot of other details on that away yet, just because it's still in the works. But that one's going to be a really fun one, like a, like an all ages comic about fighting reptilians. So that'll be really cool. <laughs> That's too cool. What else? Uh, another one that I think um, that I haven't really released too much of yet. There's a quick preview on the website, but I've got, I think, about 80 pages done and another 80 to go. So the whole story is going to be about 160 pages, but it's called Lee's Demons. And it used to be called Lee Harvey Oswald Demon Hunter. And the premise, <laughs> I don't know if you guys ever heard this, but uh, the uh, president of Haiti at the time of JFK's assassination, um, the U.S. basically had cut funding to Haiti. And he was really pissed off about this. And he basically said that he put like a voodoo curse on JFK. And that's what ended up resulting in him dying. It wasn't, you know, even if it was Lee Harvey Oswald, it was because of this voodoo curse um, that Papa Doc, uh, Papa Duvier, I think his name. And uh, the comic book just kind of like, you know, leans directly into that. And the premise is that Lee Harvey Oswald from a young age is growing up in New Orleans and he wanders into a graveyard and he notices that he can see the dead people and the, you know, Papa Legba, who kind of stands between the living and the, the dead. He notices that Lee can have this ability. So he kind of trains them to like fight demons and fight monsters. And it eventually 160 pages later ends with the JFK assassination, but it takes a completely different route to get there. That's a dope idea. I, I love that. <laughs> and, and what's crazy too is that like when i started it it's, it's such an outlandish you know obviously fictionalized concept but i swear the more research and backstory i was doing into uh george the Morinshill and Sidney gottlieb and uh you know um jack ruby and just all of the players it's crazy how uh haiti really does come front and center to so many aspects of the jfk assassination that's where like um, Zabata oil was, um, you know, not just in Mexico, but they had like some branches that, that reached out into like Port-au-Prince and a lot of the people that were in charge of those oil companies were really just kind of fronts for CIA sharing information back and forth, doing like uh, gun running, 
So it, it's the amount of information that sprawled out from this was surprising because I was just expecting to throw some cool fictional stuff, but it ended up being like a huge, you know, sprawling research project that's got all kinds of like direct references in it. We mentioned Haiti, I think, in our JFK episode, right? I think we talked about it briefly. Uh, I was thinking about it. That's so far back now, but yeah, that was our third and fourth episode ever. Like, yeah, those. Was... There's a lot to it, man. There's a lot of meat there. Yeah. Just hearing about the Lee's Demon story arc, it got me thinking there is so much that you could do with this concept. And I'm not sure of all the key points that you've hit with your work and whatnot, but it's wicked cool. It's wicked cool. Very original. There's not a lot of people doing stuff like that. Yeah, I I hope so, man. I'm, I'm really, my big goal is to just bring stories out here that, you know, no one's done before. Not like a new spin on stuff, but just a completely new take on like these classic stories and the the other big takeaway is i really want people to read something and be like there's no way that's real that's like that's too outlandish and then look it up and be like oh wow you know there's actually something that this was based on and it wasn't just completely fabricated uh, that's yeah. kind of like favorite part is when someone realizes hey i looked this thing up and i can't believe that you know this jekyll island thing there's really something to that it really did you know kind of like get together in the cover of night in 1913 and draft up all these plans and Uh, That's like my favorite part. I think it's pretty ingenious for especially the people that may be on the line or on the fence when it comes to certain conspiracies or even the facts behind them is to present it in a different way, you know, not be that person that is in standing in front of them and going, hey, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald didn't do it. Maybe it was the CIA, blah, 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 you know, and getting really in people's faces, but presenting it in a different format. And comic books are such kind of a universal thing. I think almost every kid, with the exception of maybe the kids that are growing up nowadays, every kid within the past 20 or 30 years or 40 years grew up with comic books in some sort of way. And I think it's an acceptable form to present these ideas. And and like you said, somebody goes and they look at it and they go, that's wild. There's no way that's real. And then they start doing that research. And how many people are you converting, (laughs) you know, into believers of certain things (laughs) just by presenting it in a different format? And and I I would love to hear what what people walk away if they are converted, because I swear that most of the time it's really just presenting a whole bunch of crazy facts up and saying, no, look into it. And you'll have your mind blown because some of this is real. Um, but I don't know if, if I ever push forward like a certain like I never necessarily say like aliens are good or bad or mind control is good or bad. Um, so you kind of get to like just walk away with your own impression on some of it. And I, and I like to make fun of stuff a lot, too. So uh, one example is uh, I don't know if you guys ever remember there was this old interview with Jon Stewart and Tucker Carlson that's been played, you know, ad nausea. But um like one of the things that made a light bulb go off in my head is that Tucker Carlson is debating with, uh, you know, John Stewart and they're, he's criticizing him over like the daily show is kind of like, you know, it's biased and that um, they don't always bring all the, the different uh, perspectives to the table. So they set up these like straw men and John Stewart is like, yeah, but the show that comes on after mine is literally puppets making prank calls so it and it and it made it made tucker look a little bit like an idiot because it's like oh yeah you're you're sitting here and you're criticizing a comedian for not portraying the news correctly and and just to be clear it's absolutely like a weasel way out of being like 
making you know um, a statement and then saying like, well, I don't have to stand behind it because uh, you know it was just a comedy show and I'm just joking. But there is something to that where I was thinking, don't be doom and gloom if and if you're gonna you know bring up the JFK assassination. There's so many doom and gloom versions of this of you know the NSA and the CIA are taking over. But if all of a sudden you just throw like a dick joke in there, like a poop joke, you know, like a fart joke. That's kind of how we operate. Well, and you and now you want to criticize it and be like, you know, I've got another uh, comic series called Never a Straight Answer uh, spells out NASA. And it's about Stanley Kubrick directing the moon landings. Um, But it's got just like ridiculous things happening behind the the scenes right like a bunch of guys uh like half naked show up coming from like a costume party which is a nod to eyes wide shut mixed with the rothschild surreal uh dinner ball from like the 70s but there's a scene in there and they all show up and like the guy you know they're like half naked and there's like a big monolith in the middle of the stage and like oh what's that and stanley kubrick's trying to explain the metaphor of this monolith to like a bunch of like naked orgy members so if someone were to come in and, and start criticizing the comic, it's like you're you're arguing with a comic book that's got a guy, you know, with this like dick hanging out. So um, and, I, and I I like that weaselly part of it of like I can inject some of my actual opinions and some of my actual theories, but it's always, you know, coinciding with like some ridiculous over the top thing happening, too. So I want to make it really clear that none of it is like being, you know, taking itself too seriously. You mentioned the giant megalith stone structure that reminds me of Bohemian Grove, like the owl. Mike, what was the name of the Minerva? Was it? Was it? Uh... Oh, the uh, Moloch. Moloch. People... See, I, I don't. Well, so I got I got some beef on that. I, I want to. I also <laughs> we, we have need to clear beef something on that. up here. Okay, yeah, okay, go okay. ahead, go ahead. I want to yeah. see if it's the same beef. In my in my opinion, very strong opinion that I've held for over a decade. It's not Moloch at Bohemian Grove. It it mimics the same ritual, right? It's like the cremation of care is a sacrifice to this huge deity. Um, and usually that sacrifice represents like, you know, this ritual sacrifice to burn for all of our sins or our cares so that we can go into the next year kind of like washed of sins. It's just a very traditional pagan style ritual that many different cultures have had. And it gets crossed over with Moloch just because of that um, like that human effigy that gets burnt, but that Moloch thing, I'm pretty sure goes directly to Alex Jones when he broke in, um, with Ron Ronson or Ron Johnson or whatever. And Alex Jones said it was Moloch. And then now everyone says that it's Moloch, but really you, you were right. It's, it's the owl of Minerva, mm-hmm. um, because Bohemian Grove were all about the, the owl and they've got it in all of their different symbols. And even when they found that rock sculpture there, It was like, it doesn't really look like an owl. You know what I mean? If someone tells you it's an owl, but you look at it, but when they found it, they were already all invested in the owl. So it was like, oh yeah, that big sculpture, uh, it's an owl, you know, (laughs) and that turned it into an owl. But uh, it's definitely a pagan sculpture or, uh, you know, um, a monument. It's definitely used for mock human sacrifices, which is pagan rituals. But I really don't think it's Moloch. If it was Moloch, it would be a bull. It would have like other very specific connotations, but uh, in the conspiracy world, that's almost sacrilege to, to say that. Like now, I'm like a like a shill, right? Because I'm trying to hide the, the truth of Moloch. <laughs> no, that's actually pretty insightful and enlightening. Yeah, it's good information. 
it's the same beef that I had with it. Yeah. I got ousted out of a conversation with someone on social media for doing the same thing. No, they're sacrificing children to to this deity and blah blah blah. And it's like, yeah, but you're you're talking about Moloch and it's not. One plus Moloch's like a desert god too, right? Like it was I mean, it's like a different uh, region and realm. So even if you wanted to say it's like the the Western uh, Redwoods version, it still wouldn't match up. It's still it just it makes the most sense with Minerva, especially. First of all, the owl can see at night and it can, you know, see its prey when everyone else is sleeping. But also like the um, the National uh, like liberal um, library society or something in the national like news society i got their names wrong but their emblems also have this minerval owl on top of a book and like a little pair of you know bifocals so wherever you see owl and minerva and that wisdom like that's it's that same sort of archetype that's just getting passed down you know who else has an owl in their logo the tavistock institute hmm yeah, the the MK Ultra OGs, right? See, I wanted to ask you. Okay, so you have this whole series, the Paranoid Pamphlet, MK Ultra. Before you tell me about that, I want to know what's the greatest conspiracy of all time for you? The greatest conspiracy of all time? I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, honestly, I, I do go back to MK Ultra the most, but I don't know if that if that would be like the all time version of it. I think all the all time. Um, without having like a specific name to it, but like the movie Apocalypto, that's like my go-to because that's what every priest class of every civilization did. Um, so like if for everyone, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Apocalypto by Mel Gibson, <laughs> you've had but time. essentially it's about these, uh, um, these like native American or I think they're like Aztec or like Mayan or something. And they're doing these, like they're Aztec and they're doing like these human, uh, you know, sacrifices, but essentially the main, you know, witch doctor, the main shaman at the head of it all, he knows, uh, about this solar eclipse. Like he, uh, he understands like when it comes, he knows the day it comes, he realizes that it's kind of this astrological procession that happens every year, but he convinces the entire, you know, tribe that he's in control of whether or not the sun comes back and they have to like worship him and they have to give up all these um, different sacrifices to him. Otherwise he won't let the sun come back. And then like the world ends, you know, it's like Mr. Burns and Springfield, like take like blocking out the sun and you got to like pay him homage before he shows it again. But essentially, I mean, that exact concept of someone having just a tiny little bit more knowledge like he's not even smart right he's he doesn't even control it he just understands the system in place and by just invoking fear in everyone else and making them think that he has control over it everyone kind of pays homage to him i mean you take that exact same principle and now you've got like the high priests of egypt you've got the bavarian illuminati you've got you know the top board you know levels of ceo c-suites that everyone just assumes that oh they must have this you know esoteric knowledge when really they might just you know know a tiny little bit of knowledge then they can hold it over everybody else and once the cat's out of the bag once everyone knows oh that's just a solar eclipse that whole conspiracy just like is over you know so mm. i think that that same pattern exists today in so many different ways and now it's just like whoever can hoard and harness that information the longest and the best uh, kind of gets to be that you know that shaman witch doctor essentially it's an interesting analogy too it's just a person who knows how to fix the system like you said and has that 
knowledge to do so. It's almost like a, a fake it till you make it situation where you declare yourself the winner in so many different ways and so much that people start to believe that you are the winner. Right. I think like a time cop scenario too, like the, the crappy nineties movie time cop, but they just go back a hundred years with a machine gun. And it's not like they're, you know, technologically advanced as people. They haven't gone through some extra quantum leap in intelligence. They just go back a hundred years with a, a machine gun and they can just like own everyone that they come across. So I, I think there's a similar concept there where people are like, oh, if I could just go back a thousand years with my iPhone, I could blow everybody's mind. <laughs> like, yeah, but you don't know how to make the iPhone. So if it breaks or something, you're just back in the dark ages with everyone else again. And then they sacrifice I think it's, you. It's, yeah. <laughs> for bringing <laughs> black magic back. Yeah. Burned at the stake. Yeah. <laughs> where, and this is kind of a lofty question. So you said you've been doing this since 2012. You started Paranoid American and you started the publishing and the comic books. Where do you see Paranoid American in another 10 years, let's say? Oh, God. I mean, I hope I uh, it's 10x the, the exposure, really. I mean, it's interesting because right as I got into, you know, doing comics, like very seriously, like, you know, put money and time into it the whole like comics gate scandal broke like literally like the same year or so as I was getting into it and uh and never at any time in my life had the comics industry had been so polarizing to the point where now like I mentioned I've got a a cameo by Alex Stein in one of my books right um I've actually had artists now drop out of projects uh, that I've been working with for years that are just like I you know I find some of these people that you're working with so abhorrent that I, I don't even want to work on these projects anymore. Um, so like it's that's something that I don't think ever even would have happened previously um, because I don't think comics ever had such like a political and polarized you know thing going for it. But now the pendulum's starting to swing the other way a little bit too. Um, like Ripaverse, for example, is kind of like starting his own big, you know, um, kind of like his own universe. You know, that's what Ripaverse stands for. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with Ripa. Um, uh, Eric D. July. He's basically like a conservative comic podcaster. And he just decided like, screw it. If the industry doesn't want to let us in, I'm just going to start my own thing. And he ran a, an online crowdsourcing for his comic book company. And he raised like almost $4 million or something in the course wow. of like two months. Could you elaborate on the comic book scandal that, comic that you mentioned? <laughs> comic gate. Yeah. Uh, it was basically just a handful of artists that um, and it was right around leading up to like the 2016 election. So if I could just like grossly oversimplify it, like any conservative comic writers or comic artists uh, got outed and um, kind of got like, you know, pushed out of the series they had been working on. There was like these large online campaigns of like people emailing DC and Marvel or whoever, anyone else that was working with certain writers and artists and just like, you know, we don't want to buy your books anymore. And then in backlash, there was like this full pendulum swing to the other extreme where Marvel and DC just started hiring up, uh, you know, brand new writers to kind of like fill diversity quotas. A lot of people would, would kind of argue. And um, you, you see some of the storylines where all of a sudden, like a lot of popular comic book heroes are like, coming out of the closet or they're um they're like just they're kind of being repurposed for all of these different sort of like political takes as opposed to just letting comic book heroes you know fight crime and have big muscles and you know shoot lasers out of their eyes 
it started taking uh, a kind of like a stronger tone. And and it's not that comics were ever non-political, right? Like even the the X-Men and a lot of the, the original Marvel mutants, it was about these uh, these like ostracized, you know, minority groups of people, the mutants, they were getting pushed out by the large majority. So there's all kinds of civil rights and um, all sorts of other, you know, narratives that are baked into the stories, but it had never been necessarily co-opted to where it literally had like, you know, Donald Trump or something in the comic doing bad things and people hating him. Mm. Um, so I think that there was that the, I'm, I'm grossly oversimplifying like what the comics gate was, but it really was just like, Trump's about to be president. Uh, anyone that is conservative, vilify them, get them out of the industry. We don't need them here. And this isn't like a, you know, I don't have one or the other kind of like political sway, but for that to enter into the comics world, it was like this, you know, irreversible milestone that no one's gone back from ever since then. Yeah. And that's another thing. If you start to vilify one group especially a political group which makes no sense because it's the same group of people realistically what's the saying uh a different wing on the same bird it's it's the uh, the byzantine eagle that we're you know it's the the two heads looking over the two sides but it's yeah. the one body right yeah exactly and you know if you start to do that in these different industries and that happened a lot through hollywood that was another big part of it and it pretty much throughout all media once he got into office. But when you start to do that, you start to only get the viewpoints and the opinions of one side of the argument or one viewpoint from one group of people, and you don't get to see the other side of it. And I think that's more of a breakdown of culture than anything. And we're kind of seeing that now with the movements about every little thing. Everything needs a movement. Everything needs a march. Everything needs a protest. Everything and an needs LLC to, and a trademark yeah, copyright and a logo and a merch. <laughs> yeah, I think it's blown out of control at this point. And do you possibly, and this is like, it's just an opinion really, but do you think this the start of the end? for us as a culture it's just, like, it's just a continuation of the experiment growing more out of control like uh I, i've got another um i don't have my own podcast but i do a series with one-on-one called the occult book club and we read a bunch of books from like the 1900s and the late 1800s and there was one we were reading recently it was literally 100 years ago 1922 it was written and it's just about, you know, how the decline of society and everyone is just so busy with all their newfangled technology and like all of these, you know, these new fiction books that are coming out and, you know, society will never be the same. Uh, and you can even go, I, I can't remember if it was Plato or Socrates, but one of them was was talking about like these kids in their books, you know, going around and reading uh, like all these, you know, fiction novels and stuff. Um, you know, youth is just going right down, <laughs> right, you know, right to hell. So it's always been that sort of a theme, but I think that um, like more now than ever, you know, we've found ways to capitalize and like monetize and turn these opinions into products and little sound bites. So now if I, it's, it was, you know, 10 years ago, it was like the headline, it was rage clicking headlines. So if I just wrote something that I knew would make you angry, you'll engage with it. And then I get advertisers and, you know, now it's it's kind of that on steroids, but all I got to do is show you a six second short 
uh, to get your blood rising. And now you're sending that to people and you're reacting to that. And you don't even have to type out a big angry response. Now you can just do like the little, you know, frowny face emoji. And it still counts as that same interaction. So um, I really think that if people don't figure it out, at least corporations or figure out how to like harness this somehow, you know, we're all going to be like our opinions and our emotions are going to be like NFTs sold on some black market behind the scenes. Just to bring it back to the comet gate thought process. And I don't want to linger on it for, for too, too long, but, and correct me if I'm wrong. Is it just me or did it get worse once Disney got their hand on Marvel? I don't want to make it like a Disney versus DC thing, but that's where I started to see a trend personally. I mean, you're not wrong. That definitely didn't help the trajectory at all. Uh, If anything, it it definitely just threw a little bit of extra gas on that fire. Um, But, and and again, it's the, the Disney one's a good one to point out because you notice that when it comes to the brands and the storylines, they want to make sure that are suitable for China um, like a lot of that same censorship and, and, you know, inclusivity doesn't necessarily carry over into other markets. So it really just comes down to like what they can best, you know, um, turn into a product and sell and make the most uh, money out of. I don't think there's a whole lot else that goes into it. And, and I want to make another good point here, too, that when I started in 2012, the general concept of conspiracy theories was very much considered more of like a left wing thing. It, it was not. Uh, it didn't just immediately get, um, you know, attributed to like Alex Jones and right wing far extremism or anything because alt right didn't even exist at that point. Right. So in 2012, conspiracy theory um, crowd was pretty much the Occupy Wall Street crowd. So we're talking like far left, you know, but then like six or seven years goes by and the exact same comics and the same company and the same stuff that I've been writing. Now, all of a sudden, people assume that it has like a right leaning uh, tint to it as opposed to the left leaning and it's like i didn't go anywhere i didn't change any of the storylines but just because of like the general zeitgeist of you know 2012 it was oh conspiracy theorists occupy wall street you're part of antifa you're part of black block um, but post 2016 it's like oh conspiracy theorist you're alex jones you're far right wing um you know it, it's it's funny because conspiracy theory as a whole it's like this hot potato that like neither side ever wants to take ownership of you know what i mean so like whoever is in power they just say it's like the other one that's in charge of all the conspiracy theories but i really think that there's enough hardcore conspiracy theorists which i'm you know self uh, attributing that but that we don't trust anyone enough to believe in one side over the other the Disney thing is crazy i've been to the avengers campus in, in anaheim before and it's extremely underwhelming and I swear that some of the people working there are probably actually body doubles of some of these actors or aspiring actors, because <laughs> I actually found out that the guy who plays Jack Sparrow in Disneyland that's walking around all like, <clears throat> like walking in between everybody is actually Johnny Depp's body double. That's pretty interesting. But the Disney stuff is crazy because it's gotten really weird. And remember the beginning of the MCU What was it? Iron Man one was legitimately the first one right and then how it's changed all the way to the end well and with disney plus it's a whole extra level and it's it's interesting that they also have star wars too um because i mean like if you think about it at least for me like the like the deepest nostalgia if we if we get rid of teenage mutant ninja turtles and chuck e cheese (laughs) 
like almost every nostalgic memory is has something to do with going and seeing a Disney movie with grandparents or parents or going to Disney World. They're like seeing Aladdin or the Happy Meals toys that came out in, you know, uh, relation to some Disney movie. So Disney already kind of has this this huge monopoly on childhood and nostalgia. It's almost impossible for most, you know, American kids to think back to their childhood and not imagine some experience related directly to Disney, even if it's not to the movie, like the the princess um, sort of archetype, like that exists because of Disney. That wouldn't even exist in our society without Disney putting it in there. So now give them Star Wars and give them uh, Marvel. It's it's almost like you know they're they're closing in on an absolute monopoly over nostalgia, which is which is a little bit scary because I think that nostalgia might be just as potent as fear when it comes to manipulating people. It's, it's an interesting blend. My, I think my opinion is that nostalgia is like this perfect blend of love and fear, like the the two different emotions because the, the love aspect is a little bit obvious. You're always just thinking back to like simpler times. It's usually when you didn't have a lot of responsibility, you didn't have a job. So it's easier to like be nostalgic about that. But then the fear part of nostalgia is that like unspoken part of saying, and it's never going to get any better and it's only going to get worse from here. You know, that's that fear aspect of it. So the companies that are able to like create that perfect balance, you know, like the perfect Long Island iced tea or something, right? Like just enough nostalgia, you know, love and just enough fear to create that perfect blend of nostalgia. And Disney's going to be able to hone right in on it because, um, you know, they've got the lion's share of the content but also like all the analytics and everything else that goes with that. I mean, I worked at Disney for about 10 years uh, in post-production. Yeah. That's when I actually started the the comic company. It was because I was, I was, you know, I was elbow to elbow with world-class animators and artists. And I was just thinking, man, I've got these crazy ideas and I want to do an animation or a comic. I'd be silly to not, you know, tell the guy next to me, like, Hey, let's work on a comic together about MK ultra, you know? Um, so that gained and lost me some friends and it might have limited my my uh, uh you know my career path while i was there um but I, the thing i was going to mention is that it is absolutely mind-numbing the amount of detail that goes into like guest analysis like for example they they introduced all these extra things so they, they would just have on camera a bunch of people waiting to get into like the pirates of the caribbean ride right and you might be in line for two hours waiting to get in there so then they start introducing like fast pass systems where now it's like, we still want you to be in line, but we don't want you to be in line and then not shopping and like buying food and stuff. So they, they introduced the fast pass, not to alleviate frustration, but to get you to buy stuff while you're waiting to go on that ride. And then they just keep upping that a little by little, like small little increments. Let's add the app. Let's add all these extra um, things. Sometimes they'll come over and like, take a drink order. Oh, do you want something? And this all sounds really like basic, but every one of those interactions is tracked and logged. And there's like algorithms going that Mm. someone goes and they just like change a variable somewhere. And you can actually see the real world impact of like the line getting longer, the line getting shorter because they open up a new traction or they start like a 50% off, you know, burgers at this place where this huge line is forming. They can actually watch people like leave that line to go and spend their money and then go back and wait in line again. And it's, it's like a science experiment and it's crazy to see it from like the control room aspect of all that. The one thing I got to ask, I don't know if you can divulge the information real quick. What projects 
have you worked on with Disney? I would be really oh, interested. Oh, yeah, I, I can divulge. I mean, they're yeah. like top secret or anything. So if you've ever been to Epcot Center, um, which is actually a spaceship Earth, I think yep. uh, it's called. And it's like a dark ride that you go through and it starts with like caveman and it ends with Steve Jobs or the future. Basically, it's going up and then it's going all the way around this, like the inside of that Epcot dome. And then when you get out, it kicks you out into sort of this like big interactive activity area. So I worked on a lot of the interactive games and animations that are in that area that it kicks you out in. But also um, above that area, there's a VIP center. So if you want to go and book um, some like really expensive conference and you want to impress all of you and your conference attendees that you get to stay inside the Epcot ball uh, at Walt Disney World. It's like this huge upsell, but the whole inside of that part we designed. Um, I worked on the American Idol experience, which was kind of like a like an interactive game slash show that kids could go and, you know, pretend that they were in the American Idol. Um, some other of like the interactive games, like the, the Toy Story ride where you shoot the gun and it's got like 3D animations. There was uh, the Disney cruise ship uh, line, did a oh, whole shit. bunch of projects for that. They, they had these things called like the magic porthole. So it was like a portal that would be in the hallways, but it was an in, it was an interior hallway. So it didn't look out into the water, but we made it look like it would go out into the water, but it, it turned into like this uh, scavenger hunt. So you'd go around the ship and look at these portals and they'd give you clues and say to go to these other places. So a lot of the stuff I did was very much like interactive game programming. And then I worked a lot on doing um, like animation scripts, just making 3D and 2D animators jobs a little bit easier by uh, like one script that just made like a character look like they were going up and down hills and stuff like real basic stuff. But that was that was the, the main, you know, uh, bread and butter sort of of my job. That's so funny. I found a magic porthole at a truck stop once. Different. different. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> oh, did you? Did you? Was there was probably magical. a Disney fanatic on the other end. Yeah. Was it about, yeah. Was it about this big? He sounded goofy. <laughs> and I got and I gotta say though, the whole time, and even as a kid, man, because uh, I grew up in Florida, I always felt a little bit weirded out by adults that were like really into Disney that had like the figurines and the stickers and. Even going back to like, you know, single digit ages, that always kind of creeped me out a little bit. There should be an age cutoff. In the future, if some production company were to come up to you and offer you a whole bunch of money to turn one of, say, your comic series into like a live action limited episode series, would you go for it? Is that something oh, yeah. Yeah, you'd eventually want to do? Cool. I, I mentioned that um, like it started as a music project and then I really wanted it to be an animation project. And once I, uh, like, I actually, because I was at Disney, right, like our entertainment lawyer knew some people and I had some people that I worked with that knew people. So again, it was like, I would be silly to not just call in all these favors. So, you know, just being at the right place at the right time and knowing the right people at Disney, I ended up flying out to LA and pitched um, my, my comic series called Time Samplers. And I pitched it to Six Point Harness, to Titmouse, um, to a couple other animation studios, a lot of them that work with like William Street and Adult Swim. And I had some music um, connections with William Street too, because before I even got into comics and animation, I did a bunch of professional music for a while. I For MTV, VH1, um, I did some stuff for 
Howard Stern uh, show, like a bunch Jeez. of bum fights. I did, cool. I did some of the music for the original bum oh fights God. DVDs, bum fights. Fuck yeah. which I'm not super proud about, but it's no, it's be a, proud of that. It's a credit. Be proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but anyway, so I actually had some ins already because I had a whole bunch of music that was playing on Adult Swim um, in their little shorts between episodes and some on actual shows. So I just pulled in every like anyone that I had ever talked to or even had CC'd me in the email. Right, I just pulled in every. Um, sort of favor I could think of. And I flew out there and I met with all these people. And uh, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was like way too green. My my idea was just an idea. It didn't have like a story or a script. I didn't even know what any of like, I didn't know anything about anything. Right. And I thought I at least had a rough handle on it. So I go go out there and I just look like an idiot um, in retrospect, but it was such a learning experience. But I also came away realizing that for a seven to 11 minute pilot short that you need to create and then use that to pitch to all the networks and everything um, at the, at the bargain, you know, basement cheapest price was going to be around $70,000 for like a seven shit. minute short. Um, and I'm like, you know, I worked at Disney, but I was underpaid at Disney and I didn't have anywhere near that kind of money. So it was just immediately like, okay, <laughs> so what else could I possibly do with all this? And I realized that uh, even if I wanted to make that animation, it would have to start out with storyboards. And a storyboard was just kind of like a really simplified version of a comic. So I just kind of eventually was like, you know what? If I'm going to make the storyboards anyway, let's just make it out to a full comic with color. And then I could use that to maybe pitch uh, for whatever the the pilot might be. And I just never got back into that pilot because, again, the, the cost to do an animation never went down from there. If anything, the price just keeps going up. Um, so that, that I, I would absolutely love to get back into, you know, live action or making it into like an animation. But it's so cost prohibitive, man. It's it's almost impossible. And I had one opportunity um, when a, an investor was kind of like getting excited along with me with all the animation studios and stuff we were talking to. And um, he, he actually had, uh, agreed to giving me about 70 grand to do a pilot, but there was a stipulation. He wanted the pilot to be about Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood. And like, it took this like very specific, like he wanted the, the whole story to be like my time samplers guys. They essentially are time travelers that solve conspiracy theories like in real time, you know, so like they actually go back to 1913 and they kick down the door and they see everyone like signing the federal reserve act, you know, where they like, they kick down the door at MK ultra and they see Sidney Gottlieb, you know, injecting some poor guy with a vial. So it was very much like, let's assume that conspiracy theories are real and put them right there in the location with the people just to like draw the story out. Well, he loved the concept that he was like, all right, well, I want your characters. The first episode, they go back in time and they meet Margaret Sanger and they find out that she's like, you know, trying to like, you know, push eugenics and abortion, which would have been an interesting topic, but also it was just being pushed with such a specific like laser focus mm. that I, I felt very uncomfortable. I was like, this feels like it's going to end up not being the thing that I wanted to make. And it's going to be like a vehicle for someone else's thing. And this happens way more often than you would expect too, because sometimes I mean, someone presents you with that check, right? And they're like, here's the money that you wanted. You can do the thing you wanted to do, but, you know, yeah, dot, dot, dot. The and sometimes that asterisk, you know, people are like, hey, I'll, I'll do it. 
Um, and it was one of the hardest decisions that I ever had to make to, to just say like, eh, no, thanks, you know, thanks, but no, thanks. Well, mm. good on you. That's kind of where my question stemmed from that risk of possible creative control of whoever else might be involved and what that might come along with. In my experience with music, we've had a record label visit one of my previous projects at our practice space. And they said everything was cool. They listened to it a couple of days later, got a call and we're going to change this and this for this amount of money. And we all talked about it. We'll give you a call back. And we ended up not doing it because we were like, dude, this is like fucking 35 grand to make a record, do a tour cycle. And they want us to delete six out of 10 songs that we had and start over because they were like, nah, that's not what people want to hear. Well, and, and on top of that, too, man, that usually those labels, they want to get you to have like features from their other artists um, to like, you know, just to spread their promotional budget out, you know, cast a little bit of a wider net. But yes, it's a, it's an interesting dynamic um, when the people that have the money that you need for that creative endeavor, uh, it's like they they see the value in the creativity that you're bringing, but they're like, yeah, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, and we had the same thing at Disney too. like the, the same exact example. Um, I always, I always refer to it a very inside joke, but uh, purple button syndrome, because we had this like chain of command that once like a creative project was done, you didn't just get your boss to sign off on it. They had to go and pass it up the chain and it went through like 12 different suits at Disney and uh, everyone had to have an opinion. You know what I mean? And uh, usually enough of those people had enough going on in their regular jobs that they would just sign off on it. But every once in a while, you'd get like the guy that just got the job or the guy that wanted to make some impression. Or maybe it had to do with um, uh, I did a game for Monsters, Inc. And one of the execs just happened to have like a kid that really loved Monsters, Inc. So, of course, he had to have like some extra opinions. So it came like, you know, all this time and money and like we, we delivered it by the deadline. But an exec comes back and it's like, yeah, it looks great and all, but I had like my seven-year-old daughter play this game and she really thinks that this button should be purple. And it was just like we had, you know, we had like a design spec and a style guide and we had people in place to make those decisions. Um, and it just turned into this like long pattern. But the the walk away or, you know, the takeaway was just that when you get these people in these the high positions every once in a while they just want to put their stamp on it and it's like that meme of like so you know um someone brings like a ball to another guy and it's like hey i made this and then they walk away and the guy's like you made this no i made this you know <laughs> it's it's that in real life and it just constantly happens so after a while you know we'd uh like a, a change request would come down from on high and it would just be like yeah it's another purple button and you knew that was just because someone had to have an opinion somewhere and it's again, it's the same thing. We want to talk about uh, music videos again. It's kind of that same aspect, right? If I'm footing the bill, like I say, there's going to be a pentagram in the background because I'm the one that paid for it. Well, that brings us full circle back to music. <laughs> Paranoid American. This was great. Please tell everybody where they can find all your publishings, all your comic books, your social medias, all that. This is your time. Great. Um, so you can right now you can go on paranoidamerican.com and you can read maybe like a quarter of of the titles that I've got so far. And you can read them all for free until the end of the year. And then I'm probably going to take a lot of those off and then just start selling them 
uh, direct on Amazon and Comixology and a few other places. If you want to get some prints that I got now, um, I've got an Etsy shop that's pretty much got the MK Ultra pamphlet that you guys noticed um, and a few other you know stickers and merch and stuff. And then if you want to see the latest stuff I'm working on, um, at Paranoid American on Instagram, and that's where you're going to see all sorts of previews on things that aren't on the website. They're not on Amazon. They probably won't be on the website or Amazon for another like year or two. Cause again, I, I like to work a project all the way through until it's completed and then release it. Um, so I just kind of like tease some of the panels out after a while, but it also means I've got a huge backlog of stuff that I've just be constantly releasing over the next two to three years. Beautiful. And we're, of course, going to put all your links into the show notes for this episode so everybody can find you. And we're friends with him on Instagram. So if you guys can't find him, just go to our Instagram and you'll be able to find him very easily. And one more thing, uh, Paranoid American, before we go, just remember, we are kind of a secret society of conspiracy theorists. So if you should ever need characters or anything, just to keep it, keep us in well, mind. Well, well, I want to dangle this out there too. If if uh, you like the MK Ultra pamphlet, um, I'm definitely. I mean, it's it's based on Chick Tracks, and if you're not familiar with the Chick Track format, um, look into who Jack T. Chick is. But essentially, these paranoid pamphlets. The first one was about MK Ultra. I've got another two coming out. One's going to be on um, uh, homunculi. Uh, it's going to be a, a homunculus instruction manual that tells you like how to make one how to care for one, the special abilities that you can get from caring for one. And then I'm doing one on adrenochrome that might tie into the, uh, the satanic panic a little bit. But the, the, what I want to dangle is that if anyone out there has got some very specific um, topic that they want to go like really deep into and make a pamphlet, reach out, hit me up, man. Like I'm, I'm looking to collaborate. So if you've got, if you want to do the one on project Monarch or do the one on Roswell or whatever your topic is, uh, just reach out and hit me up and, and let's see if we can make something. I think we're about to do that. <laughs> all right, Hushlings. Thank you, Paranoid American, again. Thank you all for tuning in to this Declassified Discussions. I am Mystery Mike. I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Sick Frank Sanders. Peace, 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 peace. <laughs>